This evening I'd like to look at another idea that is is rather characteristic of, of Zen Buddhism, and that is the idea of, of sudden awakening. This is often contrasted with the notion of the path as being a graduated series of steps, one leading to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, at the end of which there will come some kind of enlightenment or, or insight. And when Zen emerged in China, at the period we spoke about last time, it was around that point that this debate, this discussion, began to emerge between a sudden as opposed to a gradual approach to practice. It's got a long and complicated history, which I'm not going to go into, but I want to focus really on what, in fact, it means to say that the path is somehow sudden as opposed to gradual. The very notion of a path suggests a series of steps or stages. If we go from from here, say, to, to Bristol, we can readily understand how that journey would be broken down into stages. We could divide it in whichever way we wished. We could say, well, you've got the first of all, you go to Newton Abbott, and then you go to uh, Exeter, and then from Exeter you go to Taunton, from Taunton you go to Bristol. So you've got four steps. And the logical mind being the logical mind, this process can go on uh, more or less ad infinitum. Well, how many stages does it take you to get to Newton Abbott? And you say, well, first of all, you go to East Ogwell, and then... (laughs) How do you get to East Ogwell? You break it up even further until you start calibrating the path in finer and finer uh, degrees. And this is effectively what, in the course of Buddhist history, has happened again and again. The Buddha, of course, laid out as a very central uh, plank or very central idea of his whole teaching, the notion of the Eightfold Path. And here already we have a notion of a path which implies a beginning and an end, and the travelling of a path invariably is something that takes time, and the Buddha helpfully delineates that path in a series of steps, or what look like steps. I think the Eightfold Path is actually rather more complicated than that. But nonetheless, it's very convenient, given our time-bound consciousness and our almost unavoidable tendency to think in terms of things taking time over days of weeks, of months, of years. And that if we start at A and we want to get to Z then clearly we're going to have to go through B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and so on. So what may have started out as simply a kind of 
rather useful set of guiding principles, right view, right thought, right action, right speech, and so on, which do certainly follow in a kind of linear progression, over time develops into some extraordinarily detailed descriptions of what it takes to get from delusion to awakening, from here, in other words, in my profoundly deluded state as a, as a sentient being, as the Buddhists say, to evolve to becoming a Buddha. What happens is that the, the process just gets stretched out. So if you, if you look at a text, for example, like the Lamrim Chenmo by Tsongkhapa, uh, which was written in the 13th century, uh, it's called The Great Exposition of the Stages on the Path. This is about a four or five hundred page text. And it, it breaks down into probably hundreds of phases and sub-phases. Now, at one level, that's quite useful. But I feel it also has a rather disturbing shadow side. And the shadow side is that with each further calibration and division and development of such a theory, the person becomes increasingly remote, increasingly distant from the goal that is being um, aspired for. So you get in uh, some of the Indian forms of Mahayana Buddhism the idea that to be able to develop from a, a deluded person in, into a Buddha will take three incalculable eons <laughs> and uh, which is well, however long that is it's obviously a very long time <laughs> and many many lifetimes will be involved in all of this the Vajrayana in a way is a rebellion against that and it's talking about how this process can somehow be shortened but nonetheless you can see the tendency um, in Burma when the movement called Vipassana developed at the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century. Again, the way in which it pre was presented was in this model of the stages of insight, which was developed by people like Mahasi Sayadaw and others. And again, it begins to exhibit this same tendency. Look back at Buddha Gosha, who's the main commentator for the uh, Theravada school, he lived in the 5th century in Sri Lanka, the Vishuddhimaga, the path of purity it's called, and again it's, a it's, it's two or three hundred pages at least of finely calibrated stages. Now I think this process that occurs in theology, or Buddhology in this case, and certainly it seems to be um, an activity that attracts a certain kind of mindset of a group of monks sitting in a monastery with perhaps not much else to do. That <laughs> these kinds of, of treatises and documents uh, begin to flourish. Another shadow side of it 
is that it begins to create the basis for a certain elite, the priests, the monks, the roshis, the lamas, the ajans or whatever, who become those who somehow embody enlightenment and wisdom and compassion and all of these values, whereas the ordinary uh, person, the ordinary Joe Buddhist, is um, increasingly um, presented as someone who's a hell of a long way away from the heights of spirituality which are curiously always found amongst those who have power and who have some sort of um, uh, sanction from the tradition. In other words, there's this process of alienation. Now, this is very much the critique of religion that we find in Karl Marx. And Marx took his whole thinking about religion from... um, a lesser-known philosopher called uh, Georg Feuerbach, who's little known today. But he wrote a book in the 1840s called Das Wesen des Christentums, The Essence of Christianity. And he makes, effectively, this point. He sees religion and the institutions of religious power as being systems of alienation that progressively distance the the man and the woman of the world, us, from our true nature. Our true nature being love, um, intelligence, and power. These qualities that are really fundamental human qualities that all of us possess become projected onto in the case of Christianity, Christ and God. And the more that the church, as it were, intervenes, and the more that the church raises these figures to greater and greater heights of perfection, to greater and greater heights of omniscience and omnipotence and all-embracing universal love, the more that leaves the ordinary person somehow feeling insignificant, um, unfulfilled, uh, remote and distant from these objects that can only now really be seen as objects of reverence and worship. But the idea that you yourself might actually bring those qualities to fulfillment in your own humble life, that's really not something you can conceive of. And so you find, both in Christianity and in Buddhism, a similar process at work, a process in which um, a privileged monastic, usually, or priestly elite, almost invariably linked into some secular form of authority or power, begins to take to itself all of these qualities, and if it's the case of Buddhism, the ordinary layperson has said, well, actually, the best that you can really hope for is to pray for a better life um, next time round where you, if you're lucky, you might get reborn as a monk. And there are many Buddhist texts that say that if you are a woman, the best you can really hope for is to get reborn as a man. (laughs) Oh, seriously. 
And if it's in a, in, in, in a more Christian context, then the possibility of any kind of real uh, well-being or fulfillment in this life is really just a rather hopeless dream. You need to direct your energy and your faith towards the achievement of such fulfillment after death. So Zen, and I think we can perhaps say the same about a lot of Movements I mentioned last time, uh, the, the, the basic thrust of pro- Protestantism. I think this movement is very well illustrated in the life of George Fox and the founding of the Quaker movement. And we find, I think, probably similar examples uh, in most traditions. Sufism probably is an equivalent in Islam, where at a certain point, uh, the, the tension, the distance between oneself and the object, be it God or enlightenment or whatever that you aspire to, becomes so great that it becomes dysfunctional. And it leads to a kind of breakdown and it leads to a sort of revolt. And Zen is very much, um, in its origins, a rebellion against the extreme expressions of gradualism as it's sometimes translated. And it's a return to saying, look, enlightenment is not something far away, the privileged experience of the great monks and so on. It's actually right here and now. In other words, there is a move from a kind of doctrine of transcendence to a doctrine of imminence. That would be the theological language that in fact, all of those qualities, love, compassion, wisdom, and so on, are actually right here, right in the heart of your own experience. If only you could somehow recognize that fact. I gave the example last time of a fish swimming through the ocean looking for water. Suddenly it'll realize, well, wait a minute, actually, this stuff all around me, it's wet, ergo, it's water. There's, um, there are moments in one's life when, and I think, I'm sure this is true in different degrees for all of us probably, there are moments in one's life when you suddenly have a sort of aha moment, uh, a kind of shock, wake, uh, wake up. But in fact in some very true way, wisdom, compassion, all of these things that we might aspire for are qualities that we already have. Maybe not in their, in, in their full completion and also maybe not all the time. But in a very real way, they're already there. So once we begin to, to, to recognize this, the very nature, the very relationship we have to our practice begins to change. Because often we find, whenever there is a, uh, a gradual notion of the path, and I'm going to speak just within a Buddhist framework now, whenever there is a gradual series of steps, that almost invariably becomes associated with 
proficiency in certain meditative or spiritual techniques. And the person who is able to advance along the path in the most effective way is the person who has mastered the technologies of meditation, the person who's able to to concentrate most efficiently, the person who's able to um, understand what these teachings mean, the person who's able to arrive at these different insights, that the whole process is seen very much as the solving of a series of problems, a series of obstacles. And by becoming proficient in, in, this, in, in the Buddhist case, meditation, that becomes the, um, uh, the engine which drives you from one stage to the next. Now, that approach, I think, for many people in the modern West, um, appears to be very attractive. Um, I've often read um, in books and magazines and so on where apologists for Buddhism will say, well, you see, in the West we have developed this, this wonderful, wonderful, this, this, this material technologies which have given us uh, mastery over the external world, whereas the Buddhists, you see, they've developed these internal technologies that give them control over their minds. I think that's a very dangerous way of thinking. Um, it suggests that um, all we have to do is tinker with our souls in the right way and then at the end of that, of a series of exercises or doing enough retreats or whatever it might be, then, bingo, you end up wise and loving and enlightened. I don't think it works that way. I think there certainly are elements of the practice which have a technical quality to them, and I think concentration would be one of them. This is something you can learn to do and something you can get better at. But the things that really count, i.e. a person being wise and kind and tolerant and open-hearted, these I don't think are within the reach of technical achievement. I don't think just by going through some series of steps which are outlined in some manual that you will therefore, at the end of the day, um, come out enlightened. It's as though the practice therefore becomes a kind of conveyor belt, a kind of enlightenment factory where you just have to make sure that you don't miss a step or do something wrong and at the end of the day you are wise and loving. I don't think it works like that. And in fact, one can easily imagine a person, and I can even think of of people, myself to some degree, um, who would be an example of this, who've actually done all of the appro- done all the right things, but seem somehow to have missed the point. They've become very proficient in sitting very well and concentrating, and their knees don't hurt anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> something essential seems to have eluded them, and they tend to be, you know, they might be very well versed in all of the. Uh, in all of the texts, they might have figured out all of the intricacies of Buddhist philosophy and they can speak very 
eloquently perhaps and very convincingly of these things, but somehow it doesn't really seem to have made a profound difference in the way they are, in their hearts, we might say, or in their relations with other people, or even with their relations with themselves. And this is a curious thing. I think it's, a, it's somewhat similar to a person, let's say, who aspires to become a great uh, pianist. Now, of course, in order to do that, you have to learn to play the piano. And that is, of course, requires lot, doing lots of rather tedious exercises and scales and learning notation and having lessons and getting your fingers right and so on. But it doesn't mean that at the end of the course you will become Alfred Brendel, or who, who's a great pianist. Um, it, it's, or, or whoever, or Jimi Hendrix, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is you can become proficient at the instrument... But all you produce is just, you know, proficient-sounding music. It doesn't actually move people. It doesn't really bring to that music that, that extra special quality which is so difficult to define that differentiates a person who's considered to be a, uh, a great artist or a maestro or something like that from the person who's, you know, pretty good but not the sort of person you'd go and listen to in the Wigmore Hall in London. So we have, I think, here um, a clue as to what we mean by uh, a sudden awakening. A sudden awakening, or let's say a sudden approach to awakening, um, acknowledges that the, um, the core values love, wisdom, and so on, are qualities that somehow are beyond the reach of technical proficiency or expertise. They are not essentially tied down to the number of years you've been a monk or the number of, uh, the number of hours of meditation you've put in or the amount you know about Buddhist philosophy. But they are qualities that have this curious anarchic nature almost, they are things that somehow break out or break in to our lives in what appears sometimes to be entirely arbitrary ways. And Zen, I think, has always rather focused on this point. And the Zen master, um, classically, uh, is someone who doesn't present the student with a, a series of steps to follow on a path, but seeks in each moment to wake the person up to who they truly are. The, 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 their enlightenment, their awakening, is something that's always there, as it were, just hovering beneath the surface, about to break out. And so the practice, therefore, um, begins to take on um, a rather different tenor. When you sit here, you don't have the sense, therefore, that you're embarking on some long, arduous process that will take many lifetimes. That might be the case. But you sit here asking, in this instance, this question, what is this? And you are open 
at each moment of asking that question to the possibility of a response. It's got nothing to do with time. But of course the other side of this, which is less exciting, is that there's no guarantee that anything is going to happen. (laughs) You you do not actually have any kind of control over this. It says somewhere in the Bible that the spirit, how does it go, bloweth where it will, or something like that. It's some listeth where it will. Okay, well, something like that. And I think there's something of that here, that in a way, and I think in a very deep way, there's not really anything you or I can do. All we can perhaps do, in inverted commas, is to settle into a condition of optimal receptivity, to allow ourselves to rest in a frame of mind which is perhaps more prone, more likely, more open to the possibility of insight or love breaking in. Now, in Christianity, they have a nice, convenient way of talking about this. They call it grace. In other words, it's not to do with you, your ego, striving to be enlightened. You know, Stephen really wants to get enlightened, so Stephen's going to really sit very, very well this week. But that, in fact, ironically, might be precisely what will prevent Stephen from getting anywhere. So in a strange way, we need to be able to honour aspiration and, and determination and courage and these things and commitment, and at the same time to acknowledge that the ego, the me, doesn't really have any control over what's going to happen next. There's no guarantee. We're not going to give you your money back at the end of the retreat if you don't get enlightened. (laughs) There there are no guarantees at all. One has to be open to the fact that nothing will happen. And that's okay. Because otherwise you're always trying to define and to um, uh, somehow own and control the path on your own terms of what you want but perhaps the you wanting is actually not the point I can remember when I was a monk in, in Korea we used to sit for hours and hours on end and I used to sometimes literally I used to count the number of hours I'd sat count the number of days, I count the number of miles I must have walked around that room, (laughs) as though that somehow gave me some some kind of, um, you know, some brownie points or some kind of uh, stock and shares that will uh, enable me, once I reach a certain level of investment, to get the result. But it doesn't work like that. And there are many stories uh, in the Zen texts where actually very often a monk who's striven for years and years and years um, only by somehow giving up and going off and working in the fields and somehow dropping that whole ambition is open enough when he hears there's a famous case of the monk who's, who's, who says, ah, oh, this forget this meditation business, I'm going to go and till the fields and he's chipping away with his hoe in the ground, and he strikes a pebble, and the pebble goes boing and hits a bamboo, 
of course, and goes bing. <laughs> and on hearing the bing, <laughs> then he gets it. Now he's in a totally relaxed state of mind. You see. He's given up this goal, and yet he's now become optimally receptive to it. Uh, even in the, t- in the early canon, there's a, there's a wonderful story of Ananda, who's the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of his life. And Ananda only becomes a, a paltry stream entrant. Every, everybody else is becoming an arhat like it's going out of style. <laughs> but, Ar- but Ananda just remains, you know, on sort of level one. And before the, the last council, which he's exceptionally given permission to attend, even though he's not an arhat and a liberated saint, he says, well, I'd better make one last effort. And so on the night before the council, he goes outside and he does all of this mindfulness of the body, this walking meditation and stuff. Doesn't do anything. So he, <laughs> so he comes back to his room. And then it says, and then at the moment before his head hit the pillow, while his feet were still off the ground, he experienced enlightenment. <laughs> Which, again, is, is, is the same idea. It's somehow by actually dropping the whole business that you find yourself in a frame of mind where you become receptive to it. Now, in terms of, of what we're doing uh, here with this questioning and so on, I think this making ourselves optimally receptive is also very much about opening ourselves to experience in, 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 in a fairly particular kind of way. And the questioning, which we've already spoken about quite a lot, I feel is certainly one rather core element of this, to allow ourselves to somehow embrace our puzzlement and our confusion, not to think that that's a big problem, something we've got to get rid of, but rather to recognize there's something very true, there's something very real about confusion. We're not kidding ourselves when we're confused. We might feel frustrated, but also that very confusion and and our awareness of being confused is also a very honest state of being, that kind of questioning has a deep honesty to it. Um, Heidegger, the the German philosopher, uh, talks of of questioning, he calls it die Frömmigkeit des Denkens, the piety of thinking. The piety. I've always been struck by this line. There's something there's something almost devotional, almost religious about being able to rest in this state of perplexity. You know, what is this? What is going on? To be able to come right back to that primary unknowing, that primary confusion, to drop all of the opinions and beliefs and views that you're always... Uh, presenting in your own mind to yourself and to all of your friends as to what a smart, clever fellow you are, you actually, when it comes down to it, you don't know. 
We haven't got a clue what's going on. And to be able to... <laughs> well, I can speak for myself. <laughs> There's something profoundly honest about that. There's a kind of, a kind of surrender, a kind of letting go in that um, acceptance of confusion. And that confusion, that honesty, I think also touches into an acceptance of the, of the sheer mysteriousness of things, the sheer strangeness of things, the oddness of things. And I also feel this is very much linked with what Buddhists call emptiness. Now, emptiness, again, is one of these ideas about which we hear quite a lot. But I think it's also very often misconstrued as something that we have somehow to come to understand. Um, in the tradition I was trained as a monk with the Tibetans, they, they would have the idea of having a non-conceptual, direct understanding of emptiness. That's what somehow is liberating. So emptiness thereby becomes some kind of, some kind of deeper reality, um, some kind of cosmic void or something, something that one seeks to understand. But if we go to Nagarjuna, um, who in many regards is the very originator of these, these kinds of ideas, he doesn't seem to be saying that. There's quite a well-known verse, I think it's in, oh, I can't remember now, I think, I think it's in the 12th chapter of his, of his most famous work, where he says, um, Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. So for Nagarjuna, emptiness is really not something you understand. If you think of it that way, you've already missed the point. If you think of it as something you believe in, and then you try to somehow gain a direct insight into, then you've already misconceived it. You've already misconstrued it. But emptiness from Nagarjuna is a process. It's not an emptiness, but rather an emptying. It's a letting go of opinions, a letting go of views, a letting go of fixed ideas. It's a dropping away of things. In other words, it has a kind of momentum, a kind of movement very much within it. And what is it that opinions, as it were, block or prevent? I think the opinions we have, the views we have, the beliefs we have, and not just intellectually, but I think views and opinions, and this would be true, I think, of most Buddhist schools, are also somehow embedded as a, at a kind of instinctual level. We, 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 we are convinced the world is a certain way. We're convinced that I am a certain way. We don't have to think about it or have a, some sort of complex philosophy about the ego. It comes somehow you know, ready-made. It's there. So it's not just about 
you know, putting aside some of the theories we happen to hold, but it goes much deeper than that. It's about aligning oneself or attuning oneself to one's experience in which there's a sufficient relaxation as well as a sufficient focus, a sufficient openness, a sufficient questioning, in which some of these habits of belief begin to dissolve, begin to fall away. Dogen famously describes one of his insights as the falling away of body and mind. So, something drops off. Some, something is shed. Something is relinquished. And what it is that is relinquished or dropped, I think, is that part of our mind that insists on holding our view of things very firmly, very fixedly, in place. And that, I feel, particularly around the sense of I, the sense of me, but also the sense, therefore, of other people, things, objects, everything. In fixing and holding things that way, we also somehow occlude or conceal or, or block our capacity to experience them as mysteries. The, the person we don't like, and particularly, and Buddhism is always sort of saying greed, hatred, things that we greedily want to acquire, things or people that we can't stand and want to get rid of, as soon as you're locked into that kind of emotional relationship, you actually uh, fix, you lock that person, that object, whatever it is, so strongly into place, it becomes such a fixed thing, it becomes impossible at that moment to see it as subject, say, to change, to transience, to being contingent or arising out of conditions, coming and going, and also to see it as something curious and strange and puzzling and weird. When the mind opens up, when we're able to be with the very same things with, a, with, with an open, inquiring, mindful attention, that doesn't just make the thing clearer to us. In fact, oddly, the clearer the mind becomes, the clearer we see these things, the more puzzling and mysterious they become as well. So the process here in this notion of a sudden path is not that of identifying what is a problem and then solving that problem and thereby being free of it, but rather learning to go into ourselves, others, the world, the blades of grass in the garden, and recognizing and somehow opening to the sheer mysteriousness that they're there at all. And I think this is often an experience we have on any kind of, of meditation retreat where we still the mind and quieten the mind and just pay attention. Very often when we go out of the hall in the walking period or for lunch, the world appears somehow illuminated, uh, brilliant, light, bright, uh, sounds have taken on a kind of sharpness, a kind of richness of, of, of tenor. 
And I think that's occurring because we are, perhaps a, a level below that of our conscious awareness, we've somehow relaxed our hold on the world, our hold on ourselves. And as in, in that clear-minded awareness, in a strange way, the world doesn't become less baffling, it becomes more baffling. When you penetrate into the mystery of something, it doesn't become less mysterious. If anything, it becomes more mysterious. The more you go into the heart of reality, the more you realize how little you know. And this is, again, almost a truism. You find this expression in many different traditions that the wise person is the one who, who, who's aware of how little he or she knows, not how much. So again, there's a certain humility, a certain humbleness before the world, before creation, before the, the miracle of being alive, uh, in our physical, our emotional, our perceptual, our, uh, our inner life. Uh, we tend to think of things as being reducible to, to facts and bits and pieces that we can identify and separate and know or like and not like. But once that begins to dissolve, we find ourselves confronted with something far more mysterious, far more strange. Now emptiness, or let's now think of it more in terms of emptying, of a certain letting go, is also, for Nagarjuna, and for, it's, a, it's actually a dogma within the Madhyamika school of philosophy, emptiness is thought of as equivalent to contingency, or, as it's usually translated, dependent arising, dependent origination. And, as I mentioned in the last talk, when the Buddha describes what it was that he woke up to, at least in, in, in some of the very early texts, he talks of dependent origination, dependent arising. When this is, that arises. Things are empty precisely because they don't exist in and of themselves as fixed things, but they exist only in relation to something else. And the something else, too, is empty because it, too, has no intrinsic nature, it arises in dependence on other causes, conditions, and so forth and so on. And there's this endless web of relationships, of connections, of causes, of effects, of parts, of wholes, and so forth and so on, that constitutes, for the Buddha, the nature of life itself. And in fact, I think we could almost substitute the word dependent arising with life. And it's through emptying, through letting go of our fixed ideas about things, that we penetrate into the heart of life itself. And what's, for me at least, um, most characteristic of the Buddha's vision is that life is sufficient unto itself. We don't need a god outside it to bring it into being or to sort of keep it going, nor do we need some kind of mysterious spirit or mind or pristine awareness or something inside 
to somehow give it a kind of legitimacy or support from within. So in this sense, Buddhism, at least the early schools of Buddhism, of course, in some of the later traditions, you get a lot of emphasis on mind, nature of mind, all this kind of stuff. But there's none of that in in the early texts at all, or very, very little. Instead, there's this sense repeatedly emphasized of how whatever arises, arises as something transient and something contingent. It comes and it goes. And no matter how deeply you look into it, you'll never come to something that is, as it were, you know, the bottom line. The buck stops here. You can look, and this is very clearly the case in, uh, in, 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 in the school of philosophy called Madhyamika, that the more you look into the nature of yourself, into the nature of things, you arrive neither at something, a me, or a thing, or an it, or some kind of essence or substance, if you speak philosophically, but nor do you arrive at nothing. You just keep on going. It's like those fractal patterns and holograms. It's, you go into one tiny little point and it, it expands out into myriad other things. There seems to be no end to it. There's something about the nature of the world that in its very heart is infinite. And even in, for example, in modern physics, in its search for the ultimate constituents of matter, I have the funny feeling this isn't going to end. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, it, it seems as though we're embarked on a quest for something that is possibly not there at all. And what matters really is not so much the end result, but the inquiry, the questioning. So likewise, with this kind of practice, it's not as though you, you, know, you question, you question, you say, what is this, what is this, what is this, and suddenly, kaboom, you get it, and then you can say, oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> now I can go off and do something you know, a little less painful. <laughs> the, the, the fact is that that simply just drops you down into another level of inquiry. And I feel that that goes on and on and on. I don't think there's any end to it at all. I don't think our life becomes less mysterious or strange or bewildering just because we have some satori or some insight or some experience of emptiness or whatever it might be. On the contrary, I think it's just enabling us to inquire that much more, 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 more deeply. Okay, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, we have a little time. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I just wanted to ask, um, after Buddha's so-called reached enlightenment, do you think he continued to question and um, discover new things for himself? I don't know. It's very difficult to know from the texts themselves. The, the, the texts suggest a kind of uh, finality. And um, maybe that was the case. I, mean, I don't know. But I do, I find I'm a little suspicious of that. Because um, it sounds a little bit too cut and dried. You know, one mo- mo- moment he's kind of confused, the next moment he's fully enlightened, and then he lives happily ever after. 
I don't think life is like that. Um, but it's difficult to tell on the basis of the only record we have. But certainly, if you look at how the Buddha lived his life, which was, after all, 40 years, 45 years even, after the Enlightenment, for 45 years, um, he's continuously engaged with the world. Um, what is very striking, um, I found, which I talk about in one of my last books, he's continuously interacting with Mara, with the demonic. And one of the strange things is, is Buddha is said to have overcome Mara on becoming enlightened. It's one of the classic motifs of enlightenment, is that he conquers Mara, the devil, all the demonic, oppressive stuff. But in the early texts, um, that doesn't mean that Mara then just disappears. In fact, Mara, most of the encounters of the Buddha with Mara do not occur before the Enlightenment, but after the Enlightenment. Now that, to me, implies that he's still very much dealing with the stuff, the confusing stuff, the tricky stuff of life, of the world. And he's having to work with that. That's quite clear. I believe that what he discovered was not so much a kind of a, a kind of a blanking out of everything that was previously problematic inside himself. I believe he found a radically different way of relating to it. And in that sense, then yes, I, I would imagine that um, his life was a continuous, ongoing process of understanding, of discovery, of coming up and having to resolve conflicts and problems the whole time. But he was doing it from another... He'd found another way of dealing with it. And I think that's... Um, to me, that's more psychologically and biologically credible rather than this idea of, of this perfect being. And in fact, I mean, I think Zen is, again, quite good at sort of deflating this image of the, of, 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 of the perfect Buddha that example I gave last time. You know, what is the Buddha? An old Indian beggar. The, the humanity of the Buddha very, very quickly, I think, got lost in Buddhist tradition. And it was replaced by this rather, um, this rather impossibly perfect being, um, which, as an ideal, as a kind of symbol, I think is fine. But as a way to understand the actuality of a living human being in the kind of world we live in doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Yes? Um, the very first, uh, your very first talk, you mentioned death. Uh-huh. Right. Um, the teacher that I was with for years was quite emphatic about something the psychophysical organism when it dies, uh, that's it. Yeah. Finish. There's nothing else. And he also kept reminding us that there is nothing for me. And one day one of the elders asked him, if that's the case, why bother? Um, and he encouraged us, he kept reminding us, don't seek enlightenment. Uh -huh. Nobody is helped out there. And the only answer that he came with it, uh, out with was that Try going back to your old ways and see what happens. Sorry, going back to your old ways. Yeah. 
Yeah. You see, I think, if I understand that, it's a bit like Pandora's box. Once you open this door of asking these kinds of questions, uh, you can't somehow go back on that. Um, I remember once in India, when I lived there, um, sometimes people would rather naively stumble into a month-long intensive meditation retreat. <laughs> and, and then they would spend the rest of the year trying to forget about it. <laughs> but you can't do that. Once, once a certain door has opened, um, you don't really have a choice anymore. It somehow, it somehow takes hold of you. Uh, anything else would be somehow inadequate. Um, that uh, certainly in my own case, for example, um, uh, it, it, I, it's inconceivable not to pursue these kinds of questions to to, to look into my life in this way. Uh, I don't really see a, an alternative. It's not something. I, there's no magical off switch. That I mean, sometimes people just lose interest too. That's also the case. But um, on the whole, I think that once you embark on this kind of quest, you're kind of you're kind of in it for life, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yes, just one last question. Oh, I'm, I was just thinking about the monk and the pebble. The monk and the pebble, yeah. Is, is the uh, moral, if there's such a thing, that you won't get it unless you've done the sweat before? Well, that's, I think, a good point. Um, and that's, I think, where I would do... I, I, I don't agree with these teachers who say you should stop seeking for enlightenment. Uh, I've, uh, at some level, that, I think, is perhaps a useful strategy for somebody who's become a bit obsessive about it. But... Um, I feel also that our lives, whether we like it or not, are in time. We can't not do that. Um, we can't not be in time. And for our lives to have meaning and purpose, we need to be directed towards some kind of values or goals. I, I have no problem with that at all. There's certainly a problem in somehow raising up the goal as some kind of wonderful icon. But to be oriented towards greater possibilities and values, I think, is very important. But I think the example I gave with the monk with the pebble is of a person who perhaps pushes too hard. Um, and perhaps that's part of the process. Um, I can certainly remember when I was younger being rather... I must have been rather obnoxious, actually. Um, I, was, I was really rather sort of grit determined, you know, didn't smile much at people because I had so much more important things to do. <laughs> and so possibly that is part of it. There is a, uh, there is a phase perhaps in our, in our path where um, we need to push ourselves, or we, find, we not need, but we cannot help but push ourselves maybe too hard and I can see it in all in, I, don't, I, I don't think these things really can be, asked, can be answered in, in a purely general way um, 
I mean, I can see it in my work as a writer. I, I can see there are phases where I'm just pushing, 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 pushing. And then I have to just sort of let it all go. And it's only by doing that that, ah, then I can begin to see things that I wasn't able to see when I was really pushing myself hard. I think, I think we probably need both. Martine will speak about um, right effort the day after tomorrow, so she'll probably come back to that. And I'll speak about expectations tomorrow, so we'll come back to it again. <laughs>